1: Bring in show music, please.
2: Today on Squawk Pod, Ray Dalio, the Bridgewater billionaire on investing, the U.S. economy, and tension with China.
3: The main point is that we're now in an environment of fierce competition. Charlie
2: Munger's exclusive comments on Warren Buffett's stock trades. Becky Quick sat down with the longtime Berkshire vice chair.
1: I don't think there's the slightest chance that Warren Buffett is doing something that's deeply evil to make money for himself. Plus,
2: TikTok and Twitter and the shocking rise of anti-Semitism online inside the social media storm. is
4: one of those things you can't even fathom we'd be talking about.
2: I'm CNBC producer Zach Felici. It's Friday.
5: It is Friday. Friday. Let me say it one more time.
2: November seventeenth, twenty twenty-three. Means it's almost Monday. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back, goodbye. In three,
5: two,
1: one. Cue, please.
6: Let me enjoy my moment, please. <laughs> It's trying to ruin Friday before it will be it Monday starts. before you know it. Good That's morning, what- <laughs> everybody, and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And, yes, it is Friday, and we are going to enjoy every minute this of this. This is going
5: to be the week. best weekend ever. I'm going to do so much. It's going to be just packed with... With things that you do on weekends.
6: Yes. And, and by the way, we're happy to be here. Like sleep. On a Friday morning, too. Yeah, like sleep. <laughs>
4: uh, let's talk about uh, IBM and this X story. Uh, a, lot, a lot going on, a lot of headlines. Uh, IBM pausing its advertising on X, of course, formerly Twitter, after a report finding the company's ads were placed next to anti-Semitic content. Uh, the report by Media Matters also finding similar posts were paired with ads from Apple and Oracle as well as Bravo and Xfinity, which, of course, are both owned by CNBC parent company Comcast. In a statement to CNBC, IBM saying it has zero tolerance for hate speech and discrimination. An ex-spokesperson telling CNBC the accounts uh, that Media Matters said were posting hateful content would no longer be monetizable. The accompanying content would also be labeled not safe for work, limiting its reach. But all of this comes after Elon Musk found himself in the middle of more controversy after he went uh, on on Twitter or on X himself uh, and agreed with a post that said that Jewish communities push hatred of white people. Um, so it's not just uh, it's not just these other these these other um, these other posts that are creating this firestorm. Though in, in IBM's case, we should say that it was particular to to that issue, um, not necessarily Elon Musk's comments. Though I'm sure that that's inflaming this. Uh, now, TikTok is also taking down videos and blocking searches that were promoting Osama bin Laden's letter to America, which laid out his justification for the 9-11 attacks, which is one of those things you can't even fathom uh, w- Would we'd be talking about, that this would this would go viral. And it's not just, I don't know, Joe, if you've seen it, it's not just it's going viral. It's, it's. you know how people do this thing where they have like the background behind them and they're, they're pointing to the, th- so the letter is there and then they're, it's not just that they're recycling or, or retweeting or resharing this letter. It's that they're saying that they agree with it. They're, they live in America. These are Americans that live in the, and, and say that they agree with the
5: letter. Yeah. And Show it's, us who you It's are. appalling. It, 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 for me, it's been five it, or six weeks of disbelief. I don't know what else to call it. I mean, it's sort of a disgusted uh, disbelief. And then, Andrew, I, I started thinking... So appearing next to these ads is bad, but then I started thinking, I'm watching nightly news on whatever channel, and the last thing I see is this big, uh, like at a college campus on the side of a building, this projection of uh, the glorious Hamas martyrs, and then they go to a commercial, and I'm thinking it's everywhere, and and it's worse on social media, and and it's it's exacerbated on social media and, and i think it's multiplied on social media but you can't avoid it Even the, i'm seeing things on mainstream media that shouldn't be in print look, right I, i'm seeing I, I things that reading. say look, genocide i, that, I was that. reading some of the- but but they got to carry what what's it how, how is it different
4: look look my view of our jobs as journalists is to is to, uh, to not only yeah. report to not only report what happened but uh, to talk to people, to interrogate the news, to interrogate ideas, even bad ideas. It is our responsibility to do that. So when I see things on a news report about, uh, assuming the news report hopefully is an objective report to some degree, uh, and that they're doing it in good faith, I don't look at that and say they shouldn't be reporting that these people have the perspective that they have. Um, I guess
5: I guess what I, I'm saying I, is it, it wasn't in your, in these, these, thi- these horrific— opinions that are now voiced out loud didn't begin with social media i'm realizing it it, it certainly comes out on social media and i think it makes well, think it worse it spreads, on social. i think it
6: spreads yeah more it spreads, for, more, it spreads but
5: more but these things, things have been well, this it spreads has been more around. because it's
4: not interrogated it spreads more because it's not interrogated by journalists it's not interrogated by, not interrogated by people who are saying these ideas are bad ideas and that they need to
5: I don't hear certain news organizations immediately I hear some of the news organizations calling them freedom fighters and calling them uh, soldiers, you know, or or not AP, not being allowed to call them terrorists because one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. So it's not being interrogated equally or or very successfully by by some um, pockets of of mainstream media, which is just all just weird.
6: I I started reading yesterday, Israel shared a lot of the footage from the GoPros that some of these terrorists were wearing when they went in on October 7th, shared it selectively with some journalists, obviously shared it with Congress um, yesterday or earlier this week, and reading their descriptions of it, because they don't want to share it widely um, out of respect for the families, reading their descriptions of what they saw, I hope the people that are seeing these things on social media are taking the time to go and read some of those descriptions. You can go back
5: to Uh, the Huns. You can go back to any period in history and not find anything worse. It's It's at least as bad as as the most savage behavior that the world has ever seen. And here we are talking about it. And
6: and to be able to say um, the things that they're saying supporting Hamas, any of these things along these lines, go read these descriptions and, and, and explain why you feel that way because i think if if those descriptions get the same broad play that some well, of these other things have seen
5: how can three hundred thousand pro-israeli demonstrators pro-israel demonstrators have a peaceful orderly demonstration you put fifty uh, of the other side and it's like all hell's breaking there's cars on fire and
6: yeah, look all i can say for these things they the sharing these videos of uh, osama bin laden this, this shows us who you are
5: they, they're, they're, how old are they that are looking at these things? Do they know anyone that lost a, a parent or a, or a child? Or a... you don't. You, you don't even have to.
6: If you read the descriptions, then you just consider these things as a human being.
5: Three thousand. A poor business network. What the hell happened? Uh, I don't understand. Um, but it, it, but look, it's a business story now. It's a Breathe. business. Yeah. It's, it's a business story now. And it's stupid to even care about you know that that, that side of things. It, it seems. Uh, you know, like, it's not like this. It's not worthy, but you have to because that's uh, IBM's pulling their ads.
2: Next on SquawkPod, Ray Dalio built one of the world's largest hedge funds. The Bridgewater founder weighs in on the landmark meeting between Presidents Biden and Xi, the state of the economy, AI, and more.
3: We can very much relate to the power of generative AI, it is going to be something, so there's no doubt about it. But there's definitely true that it's a two-edged sword.
0: That full interview, when we come back. Stressed about pests? When you have pest problems, don't call just anyone. Call the Orkin Pro. For more than 120 years, Orkin offers unparalleled service, helping protect homes and businesses from termites, rodents, mosquitoes, and other insects. With Orkin by your side, you don't have to wonder about the outcome of your pest problem. We'll solve it guaranteed. And if bugs creep up between services, we'll be on your doorstep free of charge. Orkin, the best in pests. Learn more at orkin.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialised across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with Jim, a leading global asset manager.
2: You're listening to Squawk Pod. Stand under by in three, two,
6: one. Cue ander
4: Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Sorkin, along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. We've got a lot going on. Well,
6: you could call it the Taylor Swift halo effect. Her influence has made its way even to Wall Street research. Research notes by BTIG, Goldman Sachs, Jeffries and others using Swift songs and titles as references appears to be surging. Fortune pointing out the BTIG titled a note. Now we got bad blood. Well, Goldman's David Coston led a note with, all you had to do was stay. And if you didn't know already, analysts are predicting Swift has contributed up to eight and a half billion dollars to U.S. growth just in the third quarter because of demand for her Eras tour, concert film, and Travis Kelsey jerseys, not to mention every time she goes somewhere, hotel rooms surge in price. You know, This is definitely the Taylor effect. People are wondering if it's peaking. I wouldn't call it it's peak
5: not yet. would it, not peaking until this next football game. You know what the next football game is, right? No, who, who are they playing? Phil, uh, Philadelphia versus oh, Kansas the City. Oh, Kelsey versus Kelsey. Family reunion. Kelsey
6: versus Kelsey, yeah. Be
5: unbelievable. Maybe that's the peak. We'll see. I don't know. Shorting her would be like shorting NVIDIA, like <laughs> at five. <laughs> not smart. Can lose a lot more than you put up, Sorkin. That's the problem. Sort something at five and it goes it's to 400. Have to short
6: anything. That's it's that's a, the a
5: limitless or bet or, or naked calls, can, man. Yeah. The scariest thing a broker can do is is layer on some. It it seems great. You get
1: Leverage. paid this great. And, uh, yeah, and then the company gets don't. taken over.
2: President Biden met with China's President Xi Jinping for four hours earlier this week, and he said he made real progress in the relations between the two superpowers.
1: At that brief discussion yesterday with President Xi. He asked why we so, he had asked me before, I reminded him why I, we are so engaged in the Pacific. It's because we're a Pacific nation. And because of us, there's been peace and security in the region, allowing you to grow. He didn't disagree. By the way, it was a very good, straightforward meeting.
2: After going an entire year without speaking, the two leaders agreed to call each other directly when needed. As a part of the summit, President Xi attended the gala reception and dinner with some prominent CEOs, including Apple's Tim Cook, Tesla's Elon Musk, Blackstone's Steve Schwarzman, and BlackRock's Larry Fink.
0: The number one question for us is, are we adversaries or partners? If one sees the other side as a primary competitor, the most consequential geopolitical challenge, and a pacing threat, it will only lead to misinformed policymaking, misguided actions, and unwanted results.
2: More than 300 executives at a few thousand dollars a plate listened to Xi's comments about cooperation between the United States and China and gave the Chinese leader two standing ovations during his remarks. Our next guest was in attendance at the dinner. Andrew kicks off that conversation.
4: Joining us right now in an exclusive interview is Bridgewater founder and CIO uh, mentor, Ray Dalio. Uh, Ray, it's great to see you this morning. I think everybody would love your own readout, if you will, uh, from that dinner. We've heard readouts from the meeting, Uh, that took place between the President, uh, some of the U.S. government officials making certain statements about uh, what they saw happening. But what did you see happening at that dinner?
3: Uh, I'll tell you about the dinner just in a second. I think I I just want to emphasize that, you know, I'm a markets guy trying to uh, think about the world uh, ahead, and there are five main forces that are at work, and they're interrelated. And that is the, uh, the debt, money, economic force, the internal conflicts that we're having, particularly the populism of the left and right, the geopolitical that we're seeing, most importantly, between the United States and China. Then, of course, there's climate and its costs. And number five is technology. And so I think we have to see that all interacting. Um, the dinner. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> was mostly uh, a gathering of um, old friends um, at a moment where there was a stepping back of uh, the risks of war. I was there last in March and at that time there was a a very clear risk of a military war and I think that uh, that really concerned both sides and there was a stepping back. I think uh, that dinner um, had to do with relationships over a long period of time. In my case, I started going there 39 years ago. They didn't have any money. I didn't go for money. I went for the relationship, I, I, curiosity at first. Then I, over a period of time, I, I, my son, when he was 11, went to a Chinese school because it was interesting. We evolved and we developed uh, good relationships. Over that time, others did. Um, A lot of people uh, had uh, friendships with people who they were working together uh, to help to develop relations, to help the economy and so on. So it was sort of a gathering of uh, Chinese and Americans who knew each other. And there was an element of warmth and and an element of relief that there was a stepping back from uh, the bad uh, risks of war. Nobody wants war, right?
4: Nobody wants war right. Let me ask you this. And I want to get to monetary policy and interest rates and, and how you're thinking about it. And I know you've been uh, thinking deeply in writing uh, about uh, some new perspectives on where we are right now. But in terms of the military risk, one of the conundrums appears to be, and it, it came out a little bit in the readout between the meeting that, that the president had uh, with President Xi, I mean, President Biden and President Xi was that there still was very much on the table China's ambition to take over Taiwan, uh, maybe not by military force, but some other way. And, and there's a big question about what the U.S. would do if that were to happen. What do you think the risks are that that does happen now? Um, and I don't know what kind of time frame we're now talking about, but also what Western companies and multinational businesses that do business in China uh, would ultimately have to do if that were the case.
3: What I'm trying to share with you is um, a perspective, that uh, to some extent, the Chinese perspective, to um, that it, there's a good back and forth. But to some extent, um, Taiwan uh, was promised at the end of World War II to be returned to China, and everybody agreed on that during, um, 1895, the Japanese came in, took Taiwan. Uh, at the end of World War II, it was given back, and everybody agreed that there's one China, and Taiwan's part of China. And that issue is a very, very important issue. It's a territorial issue that relates to China um, and, and very much uh, part of the relationships. If there is not a statement of independence, if the United States doesn't say that we are, that there is uh, an independent Taiwan. Um, I believe that you're going to continue to see this issue be a thorny issue, uh, a source of tension, but not something that's going to be beyond that source of tension. If, it, if the United States or other uh, parties um, operated where there was a um, declaration of that or that there were, uh, major military actions, then that would raise the temperature. There is, I do not expect that there would be any uh, initiation on China's part. Tensions, of course. I think the whole environment, well, you know, what was the main point of what happened in that meeting uh, between Biden and uh, Xi? The main point is that we're now in an environment of fierce competition which is different than being right at the brink of war. When they look down the abyss and think about war, literally, war, terrible. When they look down the abyss, there was a step back from that abyss um, with the idea of a very fierce competition. Now, this will be a Chinese type of competition as, uh, as well. If you look at the history of the perception of war, They find that going into a military war, if you go into a military war, you must not have been very smart because you didn't win um, without going into a war. And that is a uh, that game that starts with was described with the um, art of war is a is a game in which there's a strategic operation. So that game is still full on. This is not a change in the the basic structural issue of a rising power and an existing power and a a struggle for um, who has what say. That will continue. But fortunately, the risks of a military war have been reduced by this.
4: Let me ask you this, and then I do want to talk about the markets, though. Uh, How do you think about China as a national security threat to the United States? You know, one of the things that's happened even the last 24, 48, 72 hours, and we've seen it all over. Uh, there's been questions, I should say, even before this about TikTok, but now you're seeing, uh, you know, videos on TikTok go viral of, uh, you know, Osama bin Laden's uh, letter, uh, not just that's anti-Semitic, uh, but that's effectively calling for for, for the murder of Americans uh, across the board, the entire the entire country, and it's it's a remarkable thing, and I think there's a lot of people who are sitting around saying, what is going on here? I mean, the social media. There's there's questions about social media at large, but with TikTok specifically, one of the things, and maybe it's conflated, maybe it's not, people say that is that is a social media platform that has so many eyeballs in America that's ultimately controlled by the Chinese.
3: I think that um, we have to be careful, um, you and me and everybody, about what we really know and what we really don't know about those things. Um, and we have to let it be handled by our government officials probably who know a lot more about the intelligence of what is going on. I fear as much uh, for our suspicions or our antagonisms leading to a conflict. So I can't speak knowledgeably of what's going on covertly. I think that the war that we're going to see is going to be much more a covert war. And I think it's the responsibility of our leaders and the intelligence services to suss out what is real and what isn't real. So I don't feel I personally can answer that question well. Um, I think we just have to be careful about going into um, a military war or a war that is so damage, damaging, an economic war in the form of, um, as uh, you know, President um, uh, Biden says, uh, what we what we want to do not not do is even decouple, because if you decouple, the economic consequences of decoupling themselves are so. Though that has to be uh, dealt with with knowledgeable leaders. The most important thing is that we're strong and we have good leaders. Uh, the issue is really going to be a domestic issue. How strong are we? How well do we work together? How productive, how good are our our intelligence services? How good is the decision making? That is going to be the most important question, if we're good together. So that, that really brings us to the domestic political and social issues that are really going to determine how strong, healthy the United States is in dealing with those types of challenges. That'll be of paramount importance.
4: I, I do wanna talk about our domestic economy and, and the markets, but I think uh, Becky's got a question for you.
6: Yeah, actually uh, leaning that direction, you know, Ray, back in September, you said that the United States, you think will be facing a debt crisis. Uh, the yields have changed pretty dramatically just in the last week or so. You, you still think that that's the case?
3: Uh, <laughs> it's a, uh, look, uh, uh, you have, um, you have a change of 50, 25 basis points and so on. Let, let's just go back to the basics and, and the big picture. Um, first of all, um, let's take the bond yield. The bond yield, it, roughly speaking, has got to be um, about what we determine the expected inflation rate will be over um, the period of time. That, that's, there's, of course, there's a question about that. That number it probably is settling into the vicinity of 3 3.5%. Three That's the right number. There has to be, um, above that, a real interest rate. In other words, uh, for those who are creating, holding debt, debt assets, they have to receive a return above the inflation rate by something probably in the vicinity of one and a half, two 2%. So that is going to get you in the vicinity of four and a half, 5% interest rates. It, and you're seeing the movement around that level. Then there's the big question of the supply demand for bonds. In other words, uh, the government produces a certain amount of bonds that are in light of, in, in size, of, that is equivalent of roughly the size of the deficit. That means they're going to have to sell a lot of bonds, Okay. And then we look at who are the buyers of those bonds and do they have an adequate appetite. Uh, And that's a big risk because we have many who own those bonds have had losses in that. That's not just banks. That is central banks. That is Japanese investors and so on. And so there's a supply demand issue. You'll have these wiggles around there. But those are the fundamentals that will drive it. So as we look forward, we have a we have a debt problem because you can't keep adding to debt faster than you add to income without that problem. So we're seeing the need for the rise in real interest rates so that the creditor gets uh, an adequate return at the same time as we have a supply-demand balance. So that's how it looks to me. What's happening in the economy is that a lot of money was sent out um, in the form of checks and the like and went out to a lot of people. And um, and so there was the household sector uh, did well because the government sector did poorly. They got themselves in deeper debt intentionally so that the household sector and the business sector could be better off. And then there's the rise in interest rates. What that happens from that is that that savings of money gradually goes down. And also the uh, debt maturities as the they roll forward, gradually go up and create a squeeze. So there's an emerging squeeze happening. However, the, because the unemployment rate is relatively low and because the compensation levels have been relatively high because of that set of circumstances, the household sector's income has been good. So you have a sector in uh, the household sector, hence the economy as a whole, and I'll clu- include the business sector in that, in which by and large the financial transfer of wealth from the government as it got in debt and gave it to the public sector, uh, gave it to the private sector, that allowed that that to happen. So that is a formula in a punchline, I'm sorry I'm taking too long. Um, That is a a formula for a gradually weakening economy, not a big break in the economy, a slowing of that economy. I think that's what we're seeing. And as a result of that, that's what you're seeing in the bond market as there's a bit of a an uh, sl- uh, sl- uh, easing but, but play, in, within but that range. Right. Play,
4: play, play this out a, a little bit longer, uh, which is to say, where do you think interest rates are a year from now, you know, on a very just straight up basis? But then even longer than that, you're talking about the debt problem that we have in this country. That's becoming a, a main feature of, of debate and, and a topic, of course, in, in, in the presidential election and what's gonna happen uh, come November 2024, uh, and beyond. Uh, as
3: far as the question of where uh, the rates are, um, I think that the, uh, most likely, I think the rate structure is gonna um, be staying at its level, perhaps uh, slightly less, but there's a range of uncertainty around that having to do with the supply-demand question. We're now at a period of time where the supply of bonds to be sold will be hit, start hitting the market, and now we have to see the demand issues of that, and that'll be around there. I, I think that probably in the vicinity of, you know, uh, I would say, somewhere in the vicinity of relatively flat, I don't think there's going to be uh, any important change in the Fed uh, policy. Uh, other than um, maybe a slight easing as the economy slows down. I think the thing to realize is that there, uh, the economy will likely weaken, in other words, its growth rate going to something close to zero, plus, plus or minus, maybe 1%. And with that, that, that exerts a slight downward pressure on interest rates. At the same time, the supply issue becomes an important issue. Uh, the second part of your question, I forgot the second part. What was that? Well, just uh, how the much, longer you know, I term think is, the longer the lo- term, the longer is term is just-
4: damage of, of the longer term damage of having these uh, of having this enormous amount of debt, obviously, that's playing into the political debate. But if, if one I mean, it sounds to me you're also arguing that if we're going to have a, a soft landing, that maybe people are going to feel more comfortable holding as much debt as we do and that the rates are not going to you know blow through the roof.
3: No, I think we're talking about the short term uh, as very distinct from the longer term. Um, The short term we just talked about. The longer term is that we are at a point in which we are borrowing money to pay debt service. And there is a process by which when, when you keep having debt growth faster than income growth then that means that you have debt service encroaching on your spending. it's the same for the government as it is for us. And as that happens, and you want to keep spending at the same level, there is the need to get more and more into debt. And the way that works, it's like a, it, it, it accelerates. We are at the point of that acceleration, which creates the supply-demand problem. And it's made worse by the other issues that we're talking about. The internal political issue, the internal social conflict issue, Uh, there is something that is affecting foreign demand for for bonds for about 40 percent of our debt uh, is sold to foreigners. And so there is a concern of the American politics of of the controlling of this debt crisis and these types of things. So we come back to the same basic question. How good? How strong are we going to be when we talk about strong? What I mean is also economically strong. And economically strong means financially strong. That means it's just a basic thing. Financial, financially strong means do you earn more than you spend? and Do you have a good income statement as a country? Do we have a good income statement? And do we have a good balance sheet? More assets than we have liabilities. The worse that gets, the more we are going to have that long-term problem. And it's just you can see it in the numbers. It's just a matter of numbers. We are near that inflection point,
4: uh, Ray. Before you go, I, I did have two other quick questions. One is actually an artificial intelligence uh, question. I noticed uh, that Bridgewater has increased its stake in Nvidia. I, I know you're not uh, running all of it, but you have a major role, obviously, in the company still. Uh, meaning Bridgewater, that is. Do you have a take on on AI investment, and also do you have an do you have a take on its impact? on the economy, some people think it's gonna be fabulous in so many ways in terms of productivity. Others think that it may be so fabulous that actually that nobody's gonna need or have to have a job and that's gonna create its own uh, backlash.
3: I and we are very excited about the developments in uh, AI, uh, mostly because for the last 25, 30 years, um, I and Bridgewater um, wrote down criteria, principles for decision making, put those into formulas and saw the power of the computer in being able to help us make decisions because um, the computer can juggle many more things than the brain can. It does it very quickly, and it does it less emotionally, and you're executing a game plan. Because of all that background and the specifying of all of those things, we can very much relate to the power of generative AI. It is going to be something, so there's no doubt about it. But there's definitely true that it's a two-edged sword. Uh, It's a two-edged sword in the way that you're referring to. Of course, it's going to replace a lot of people and a lot of jobs, which brings us back to the social question, the wealth gaps and so on. Those who will invent it and those who will benefit the most from it uh, will, um, uh, like today, you invent technology and, uh, you know, you have unicorns and they get rich and then there's a large percentage of the population which doesn't benefit from that, which struggles for that. So that's a social political question of how the pie is going to be divided. But this also technology relates to the geopolitical issues and the political issues because it's a tool for war. In other words, it's a very powerful tool that can be used either to create the most wonderful things or also to be used to do the most terrible harms.
4: Ray Dalio, I want to thank you uh, for joining us this morning. We look forward to uh, seeing you again very, very soon. Thanks.
0: Cheese will be next.
2: Coming up on SquawkPod, Becky Quick sits down with Charlie Munger, the 99-year-old Berkshire vice chair's exclusive comments on a ProPublica report that Warren Buffett traded stocks in his portfolio before the Berkshire conglomerate's public trades.
1: He cares more about what happens to Berkshire than he cares about what happens to his own money. He's giving all his own money away. He doesn't even have it anymore.
0: Stressed about pests? When you have pest problems, don't call just anyone. Call the Orkin Pro. For more than 120 years, Orkin offers unparalleled service, helping protect homes and businesses from termites, rodents, mosquitoes, and other insects. With Orkin by your side, you don't have to wonder about the outcome of your pest problem. We'll solve it guaranteed. And if bugs creep up between services, we'll be on your doorstep free of charge. Orkin, the best in pests. Learn more at orkin.com.
2: Welcome back to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Becky Quick.
6: Some exclusive commentary from Berkshire Hathaway on news concerning the company. There was a recent report in ProPublica that suggested that Berkshire Hathaway chairman and CEO Warren Buffett traded stocks in his own portfolio before Berkshire's trades in the same stocks were made public on three occasions over a period of almost two decades. I haven't confirmed those events or discussed the details of that reporting with Buffett, but earlier this week I sat down with Berkshire vice chairman Charlie Munger at his home in Los Angeles for a project that I'm working on ahead of his 100th birthday, which is coming up on January 1st. Munger is the elder statesman and sort of a moral authority at Berkshire, so I asked him what he thought of that story.
1: I don't think there's a slightest chance that Warren Buffett is doing something that's deeply evil to make money for himself. He cares more about what happens to Berkshire than he cares about what happens to his own money. He's giving all his own money away. He doesn't even have it anymore. And showing how little he thinks of it. He give away the last 100 million he has on Earth, and having done that, they save with the dirty son of a you're taking advantage of virtue to make money. It's not a plausible argument. It's one more ridiculous thing that's said about virtue.
6: Uh, ProPublica itself noted that the trades were very small relative to Buffett's net worth. ProPublica has said that his portfolio trades from the year 2000 to 2019 totaled $466 million. That is less than one half of 1% of the more than $100 billion that Buffett is worth now. And of course, more than 99% of that is in shares of Berkshire itself. So Charlie's point was, it would be silly to argue that you were putting yourself at advantage over Berkshire shareholders when all of your money is in Berkshire shares too.
4: We, we had made the point when the news came out yeah, about this, the size day. and scale of it, meaning that it was tiny on a very relative basis. And I don't think that anyone thinks that there was any kind of insider trading. I've always wanted, I, look, my hope is that there's a very plausible and reasonable explanation for it. I think that the, the issue has, was much more around what he said publicly, around the idea that he doesn't trade in the stocks that Berkshire owns, right? And clearly and empirically, it appears at least that he did. Um, and so, trying to understand that, and then how does that relate? Not to you know there were other there were other individuals at Berkshire, including David Sokol, who was involved in Luprizol. He had owned shares in, in a company before they ultimately acquired it. What, I think, that, I think it, it's a dis- that, I think there's a difference. I think. But I haven't spoken with. You David Sokol wasn't accused of, of, of anything either in terms of...
6: He brought a deal to the company. If you go back, to and I, I haven't right. looked at the Sokol details in a long time, but it, David Sokol brought a deal to the company, didn't disclose to, I guess, Buffett and whoever else he was bringing that deal to that he had already bought stake in the company. Bought
4: shares in the company. And so, then
6: Berkshire bought it at look, a higher look, price. I, and that was it. I
4: imagine that, that Warren, I want to believe that Warren trades in his own account the way Joe
5: plays DraftKings just that, that, for fun. That's I don't what, know if it's
6: just for fun as much as it's funding. Remember, he's got a he's got a right. salary of 100,000 dollars But $100, it's the same amount, of, Right, it's
5: the same amount of, of I get very interested in, in $5 bets. and right. it, it's not because of the $5. It's I just want to be able to be I right. think I'm going to be able to figure can, things out. I, I can, can even you know. I
4: can even try to rationalize without knowing the I mean without actually knowing what happened that there were times where possibly he was selling shares that he owned ahead of Berkshire buying the shares because he didn't want to own them at the same time. That's one thought. And then there's another thought that maybe he was selling shares because he, did, if the if Berkshire was out of the, the stock, he thought that he should be out. I mean, I, I could come up with 100 reasons why maybe yeah, this is all good. They haven't addressed good. it. Uh, the only thing is that he because he was so emphatic publicly to his shareholders that he wasn't in these stocks, right? He was not going to be trading any of these stocks. In, Look, my hope is, as I said, that there's a very reasonable explanation for this, that there was a mistake, Such or a... that he had bought these shares. I have a view, this is my own supposition, that maybe he bought these shares a million years ago and then decided that he wanted to get out of it well, for my, whatever reason, my question and is, the timing of it was just not great. My,
6: my guess is some of it was probably for charity, when he gives some of these things maybe. Away for charitable things. But, but irrespective, he's going to have to answer right. it some
4: But irrespective of whatever it is, yeah. the problem, or the conundrum, uh, give, it's, it's only because he has a policy for the company. Right. I assume that, that that policy for the company also applies to every other employee at the company. And then the question is, does it apply to him? We talked about David Sokol. And again, I'm not saying this was a David Sokol situation, but David Sokol didn't disclose it to the board uh, or to, to Warren. Warren clearly disclosed it to himself because he knows. Right. Did he disclose to the board? Maybe he, By the way, maybe he wrote a letter. By the way, people have done this. Where situations that people have owned shares from a million years ago and they need to get rid of them somehow, and they write a letter to somebody saying, "I'm on X date. I'm going to go do this." Maybe there's some rec. I have no idea. All I'm saying is that hopefully there's a a, a very he
5: reasonable be explanation. Asked this for will question
6: it. at some point. He does not speak but publicly, publicly very often. It's such a but, a he will <clears throat> be asked but this it's so
5: diminutive. It's so. I mean, we can't even. The we don't. We need a word for how de minimis it is. It's it's log, exponentially logarithmically. It's it's a pittance. And I would say, why even do it? Why not do paper trades and not even? Do, but that doesn't work. I try to do paper <laughs> trades, and it doesn't work. I, I try to hope for one team or the other and think something's going to happen. Unless I put, I, I bet the other night I bet four dollars on something, and I won thirty-five. But um, <laughs> you have a problem. <laughs> no, it's I like I get interested in. I'm betting on Mid American Conference football: Buffalo versus Central Michigan. Because you want to care about it. Yes. Yes. And I, I want to watch I, it. And... I understand
6: that. Look, the, the answer is Buffett is going to be asked about this right. at some point. It, it is, is something that's going to come up. I was out talking to Charlie about something right. else. I didn't feel like I couldn't ask him about it, but I will tell you I honestly like when straight, I brought it, likes, it up, right. he hadn't read the story. Right. Like What he prefaced that right. with was, I said, did you hear? Did you read the story? And he said, no, I haven't read it. But Can't then t- he said, it's
4: ridiculous. I don't I even think, know if you know. What, what, well, what that's actually, by the way, an interesting point, though, because if an article like that were to come out, you would think, and you were the CEO of a company, whatever age, uh, you probably would want to communicate to your board what's going on with those trades given that that's the company policy. At almost any company actually in America, if your CEO was in an article doing things that were against the company, ostensibly against the company's policy, you would be telling the rest of the board and the board would be cognizant that that happened. right? That, that is actually a worthy point being made because I think in a Fortune 500 company in America today, that's actually something that people would He's not your raise. average.
5: not your average Forks well, 500. But He's that's, not your
4: average CEO. And then the question is, right, are you in a league of your own? And if you're in a he league is. of your own, maybe then there are no rules. I'm just no, saying. No, but he is in a league of his own.
2: That's the pod for today. Thanks for listening. Make sure to follow us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It's probably where you're listening right now. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a good weekend.
1: We are clear. Thanks, guys. Thank you so